Hey there, Desi Crime fans. I'm your host Aryan, and I'm Ashwarya. And welcome back to another episode of the Desi Crime podcast. This podcast is run by two twenty-year-olds from research to recording to post-production and social media. If you have the means, please contribute to our Patreon, and if you don't, please share our episodes and posts on your social media and give us a rating on Spotify. Be a loyal Desi Crew member. Go to Patreon.com/DesiCrime. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our latest patrons Vasundra, Maya, and Devyani. Your contributions go a long way in producing this show. The story we have for you today is so bizarre; it seems almost fake, almost fiction. This is a story of Romeo and the Devil, a story that involves dinner parties and death, passionate love and paralyzing terror, heroine. and a murderer that still roams free among all of us this is the bizarre story of a couple that made a one-sided suicide pact this is the story of anu singh Ashwarya, I just want you to take a guess, say an approximation of what you believe is a fair prison sentence for someone who was proven to be guilty of killing their loved one in a premeditated fashion, in a plan that took months to furnish and was executed in a fully conscious and sober state. If such a plan took effect and actually led to the death of the targeted victim, what would you say is a fair sentence? Hmm. Okay so I think of course anyone will agree that context matters for every case but I guess if I had to recommend a punishment in your hypothetical situation or at least I hope this is a hypothetical situation <laughs> um I would say somewhere between 15 to 20 years at the minimum and I think I said 15 to 20 years only because of one word that you used in your Let sentence. me guess premeditated is the word Yep that's the word And I think most of our really inquisitive and investigative listeners would have decoded this as well. If you're an aspiring lawyer or even an avid true crime consumer, we all know that premeditative murder is the worst kind. It involves so much planning and an established motive to kill someone, unlike say maybe a heated argument in a bar which is way less offensive. Anyway, but like premeditated that word is the reason why I would say at least 15 to 20 years. but i don't know i could be wrong it could be way more depending on the nature of the crime <laughs> way more you say ha huh? but what if i tell you that there is a person who was sentenced to prison for only 18 months for such a crime and now they roam free in one of the most developed countries in the world where the air echoes with jeremite and kangaroos squabble all over the place good old australia 18 months You know the thing about most crimes covered by true crime podcasts is that the plot is almost obvious and the listener you guys almost know what you're about to hear but you still hear it cuz well you are addicts like for example the abusive husband who one day buries his wife for the babysitter who loses the plot and kidnaps the napping kid 
you know, those template murders and stereotypical cases. Rarely do I come across a case that is so unique, so absolutely gobsmackingly unbelievable that I need to pinch myself to make sure it isn't a dream. Better yet, to make sure it isn't a nightmare. Jo Chinghui and Anu Singh's case was one such example. The story could begin on September 3rd, 1972, when Anu Singh was born in India. But the story could also begin 27 years later, on 23rd April, 1999, when Anu Singh was awaiting a verdict from the judge in Canberra, Australia, about whether she was guilty of killing her beloved boyfriend, Jo Chinghui. Where do you want me to begin, Ashwarya? Okay, so I am already hyped with that introduction. I would like to jump straight into this case. So take us to the Australian court, Aryan, on the fateful day of the twenty-third of April, nineteen ninety-nine. Well, I'm glad you chose that because that is the only script I have prepared, <laughs> and it would have been very problematic to restructure it on the spot. Nevertheless, Anu Singh, who pled not guilty in the murder of her boyfriend Jo Chinghui, a twenty-six-year-old man born in Newcastle, Australia. is waiting on the judge to deliver his verdict his final decision on whether to send anu to jail or whether anu is innocent so i have a question does australia have a jury like the us or is it like india well this case gets into the weeds of the australian system where both a jury is allowed but at the same time the defendant can ask for a judge only case and huh. this will play a key role going ahead that's so that's fascinating okay. um your tingly spidey lawyer senses were up from the beginning <laughs> but yeah the only problem was that despite claiming to be innocent anu had refused to provide a shred of evidence to show she was on the right side of the law anu had simply claimed to not have killed her boyfriend but failed to substantiate that with any evidence in fact willingly failed to substantiate it she even told her lawyer barrister jack papas not to present evidence in her defense Barrister Papas urged her to give him something to plead her appeal of innocence, but alas, to no avail. This trial had begun nearly two years back with the tragic death of Jo Chinghui. On the morning of October twenty-sixth, nineteen ninety-seven, Jo Chinghui woke up extremely sick, vomiting all over the place. His living girlfriend at the time, Anu Singh, dialed the emergency number zero 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 and urged the dispatcher to send medical help. By the time help reached, it was too late. There was no pulse on a man who seemed fine till just a few days back, who even hosted a dinner party with several of their friends. Just on a random Sunday morning, he wakes up vomiting projectiles of blood, and despite the ambulance being called by Anu Singh. the police's suspicion went straight to her and that very day itself within 24 hours mind you she was arrested for the murder of jo chinghui wow from all the cases we've ever covered that's incredibly rare for an arrest to be made within 24 hours of someone's murder mm-hmm. and she cried her innocence and that day australia's most infamous trial began but who was jo and who is anu Anu and Jo grew up completely different lives and their meeting was serendipitous and unlikely meeting of their destinies as i said anu was born in 1972 in india 
Her parents Paddy and Surinder Singh were both doctors and just a couple of years after raising Anu in India, all of them immigrated to Australia. Anu's actual childhood and early age development took place in Australia, not India. And as most brown kids tend to be, she was hella smart. She was a terrific student known for acing her exams and being a topper across the board. Her high school accolades stood the ultimate test every brown high school student faces, no matter which country you're in, which is making it to a prestigious university. Anu had aspired to become a lawyer and successfully made it to Australia's premier law school, the Australian National University, where my beloved co-host Ashwara Singh was about to go and almost went. That's right. Um, before coming to the US, the Australian National University was actually my, I think, top first or maybe second option mm-hmm. to go and study law in. So I would have been following Anu's footsteps in Australia on the very ground that she walked <laughs> had but, I not chosen to come here. But in terms of prestige, Ashwara, what would you say about this university? Was it prestigious? Oh, definitely so. I think it's the third best ranked um, law school in Australia. And while all the other universities are in bigger cities, this is in a smaller, quainter town, but it's still incredibly well known. Exactly. So Anu got the brown parent stamp of approval. Funny side note, by the way, while researching on this case, I pulled up images of where Anu went to study and the buildings had her name written on it in big uppercase letters. I was very surprised and taken aback as to why is a student's (laughs) name written on so many university buildings only to later realize I am dumb as nuts. The abbreviation of Australian National University is ANU which is the same as the spelling of Anu's name, A-N-U. Not the smartest cookie <laughs> in the box. I had read so much about this case that all I could see was Anu. Basically, the lesson is don't become a true crime podcaster unless you want a university's name to look like the lead suspect in a murder <laughs> investigation. <laughs> but even at university, Anu excelled at academics. She wasn't your typical nerd, by the way. She had a very outgoing personality. And whichever room she walked in, there was a dominant attitude that came with her in that room. One that everyone could sense. And most people respected it. During Anu Singh's trial, her father described her as an obedient, happy-go-lucky girl who played a lot of sports and was a good student. It is to be noted, and this is something that was brought up in the court proceedings as well, that Anu Singh had matured earlier than other girls and was keen from the beginning of her teenage years to wear skimpy clothes and go out with boys, even though her parents insisted she stay home and study. Despite her father's concerns, though, she thrived at school, becoming the valedictorian or the topper of that year in 1988 and obtaining high results in all exams. On leaving high school, she was admitted to the Australian National University, as we said, moving to Canberra to study not one degree, but a double degree in economics and law. She was, unlike me, a smart cookie. (laughs) Joe Chinkwe, on the other hand, was a bright young lad too. Perhaps not a topper, but his personality behooved everyone in his circle. Joe's parents, Nino Chinkwe and Maria Chinkwe, were immigrants from Italy. They moved to Australia for a better life, for them and their child. I was listening to interviews of people who knew Joe, like his parents and his friend Robert Tyrone, among many others. And one thing, Ishwara, that was constant in everyone's perception of Joe. He was a kind and loving man who made everyone around him feel excited about life. He had that quality. 
a typical extrovert, Joe Chinkwe was certainly a people's person. He was a sportsman in his high school days, a good-looking, tall, muscular chap. Yet another common sentiment people shared about Joe was that he wasn't confrontational or aggressive. And this remark is important later in the story. So keep in mind, Joe Chinkwe was not a confrontational dude. He went on to get a civil engineering degree, but before doing so, the romantic in him, the adventurous, thrill-seeking man in him, took him to Europe. For a year, Joe Chinkwe travelled Europe, met people and made memories. That was just the kind of person he was. He had a passion for life. After graduating with his degree, he found a decent job and went back to his home in Newcastle, Australia to live with his loving parents as he worked a job. As different as their lives were, Anu and Joe's fates were about to cross paths. At a party in 1995, these two met each other and on first sight, it was pure carnal attraction. Two good-looking, outgoing people? That's a recipe for a lot of passionate lovemaking. And that is exactly what happened. Friends described the initial phase of their relationship as extremely physical, like a honeymoon phase on steroids that doesn't seem to end. But this physical attraction was limited to just that. Physical. Because Anu had a boyfriend at the time named Simon Walsh. What? Once Anu and Joe started developing feelings that went beyond just lust, beyond just the carnal attraction, Anu broke off her relationship with Simon Walsh unbeknownst to him. Now, Simon himself doesn't play a big role in the story, but his sudden breakup with Anu seemed to have taken a toll on Anu. And naturally, right, I mean, they they were together, so a breakup, whether caused by her or not, did lead to something. But the breakup for Anu did more than just break her heart. It did something to her mind. It did something to her head. After breaking up with Simon, Anu and Joe officially began dating. But it ended up being a long-distance relationship. She was in the capital of Australia, Canberra, and he was all the way in Newcastle. That's 434 kilometres apart. But they grew a much deeper attraction... Joe's charming and loving personality drew Anu, while Anu's dominant aura and academic intelligence drew Joe. On the surface, it seemed like a -a once-in-a-lifetime relationship. Not just to us, but also to Joe. That's why he was willing to move all the way to Canberra to restart his life with Anu. But just like Anu's friends and just like us, Joe had no idea what was happening behind the scenes in Anu's life. For all her good looks and prim and proper dress sense and her academic achievements, Anu seemed to be struggling with personal issues. In fact, she had to redo all over her first year of law school because she was unable to cope with the distance from her family in college. There seemed to be attachment issues Anu had and these manifested in her relationships as well. Her attachment issues also explain why her breakup with Simon triggered a series of events that would completely change Anu's life. Do we kind of get a sense that Joe liked Anu more than she liked him? That's kind of the image that I'm getting from this equation. But is that true? When I was hearing their friends talk about their relationship, there was certainly this people alluded to. And I I think the friends didn't want to say it because, you know, it has implications about 
Joe not being somebody who has a high self-esteem or something, but there seemed to be Joe's language of love, perhaps, was different from how Anu expressed her love. Right. But they were in love. There was no doubt about that. It was a very passionate relationship. Maybe your assessment is right, but I, from reading about this case, I just think their language of love was slightly different. Right. But what began as a loving and passionate relationship soon found itself embroiled in a cascade of issues. Anu developed body image issues, all the time pestering Joe with, quote, do you think I'm fat? Unquote. Now, it is normal for couples to ask each other this question and just to get some love and validation, but not every day. Not when the person completely changes their diet to Coke and chocolate biscuits. Her studies were not a top priority anymore and in her relentless quest to be skinny, she spent hours working out at the gym and road testing a variety of fad diets. In his testimony, Anu's father told of how he was concerned his daughter had lost so much weight. One day, in fact, Anu showed her dad hanging skin and referred to it as fat. But body image issues soon turned to more insidious issues like extreme hypochondria. Now, hypochondria is a condition where the subject believes that they're suffering from multiple diseases and exaggerates unrelated events and symptoms to fatal diseases. For example, someone with hypochondria may associate a normal headache with a brain tumor. Now, I'll be slightly vulnerable and honest. I have experienced both body image issues as well as hypochondria. I remember in high school, I was an overweight kid and after a breakup, tried to lose weight and I hit the gym regularly, but I kept feeling fat. I look back at my pictures now and I see such a skinny kid and it blows my mind that I thought I was fat. So body image issues are real and can be quite disorienting. My hypochondria is on the funnier side and Eshwara, you know all about it. Oh my God, you all. Aryan's hypochondria, it just, I want to feel bad for him and I want to comfort him in these moments, but it's so funny. We had an incident a couple of days ago where there was a coffee cup kept on my bedside table and I thought it was an old coffee cup and I was going to throw it out. So I put my contact lens in it. <laughs> Aryan picked up the cup and began to drink the coffee and actually swallowed the contact lens and for the next hour proceeded to search online what happens when you eat a contact lens he thought he was getting a stomach ache because he <laughs> ate the contact lens I can rest assure you nothing was happening to him but it's so funny but that is not even the worst of it right no, I felt no, tired not. for a week I remember one you know when I was a kid and I self-diagnosed myself with anemia I also remember once I was bit by a dog and got anti-rabies serum which is direct injection of antibodies and that's different from the vaccine and I pestered my mom to give it to me because I for some reason believed that that dog for sure had the rabies virus. But I'm aware of my hypochondria and I channel it into things like eating healthy and working out to prevent ailments in the future. Extreme hypochondria on the other hand, like the one Anu had, is a different ballgame altogether. She believed she developed a muscle-wasting disease she also believed she somehow contracted AIDS. She really started believing that Anu Singh is about to die. Aran, I have to ask, it seems like Anu has a lot of issues, from attachment issues to body image issues to this extreme form of hypochondria. Do we know anything about what her childhood was like? Are there reasons why there are so many issues together? I was about to say the roller coaster of mental disorders is just beginning. And that's one of the key things in this case. She had 
a very normal childhood hmm but it's a valid observation nevertheless one of the first people to sense something was wrong was you all guessed it everyone's favorite psychic the mom jo's mom just did not get the right vibes from anu in fact maria never did listen to this clip of jo's mom maria talk about how she felt something about anu was off reminder she is an italian immigrant and has a very strong accent but we will be explaining what she just said we had a lot of argument on the phone because every night jerk came back from work i made sure that the food was on the table to eat we sit on the table eating and talking as you used to call 10 minutes after we eat and he stopped eating and talked to me for one hour on the phone every night then i started to get very upset about that a quite few times i went to the phone and i said look we eat at six o'clock in this house can you please ring at seven let him eat and then you can talk all night we didn't want him to go there we are so upset We didn't want Joe to go down there. I was very angry with him. I said, "Why you want to leave? Uh, you know, you got your family, you got your friends, your job here." So essentially, Anu started drawing more and more and more attention from Joe to fill a void in herself. She needed constant validation that she is okay. In the audio above Maria Chinque talks about how Joe's entire day was consumed by phone calls with Anu the moment he got home. For example, Joe stopped eating dinner with his mom. It was a family ritual to eat meals at 6 p.m. and talk about their day. But as soon as Joe got back from work, she called him within 10 minutes. It reached a point where his parents begged Anu that she call him at 7 instead of 6 p.m. to give the family some time to unwind and eat. Other weird encounters took place. For example, Nino Cinque, Joe's dad, shares a story about how at a house party, Anu would not leave Joe at all or let anyone talk to him. even when nino himself pulled his son aside to have a conversation she saw it and immediately came dashing over and started touching and hugging joe while joe was talking to his dad but that perhaps is a reflection of attachment issues right maybe she's a clingy girlfriend but otherwise loves and cares for a boyfriend but that's the thing weird encounters with anu didn't stop there Many people in Joe and Anu's circle reported weird, absurd, and sometimes straight-up haunting conversations, which may individually not be remarkable, but put together paint a broader picture of Anu's personality. What was going through that woman's head? Robert Tyrone, one of Joe's best friends, shares a very eerie story of the first time he met Anu. It was over a dinner, and instead of talking about life, career, politics hell even sports robert's first conversation with anu was about the afterlife she couldn't stop talking and asking about everybody's thoughts on death what happens after death what is afterlife like and robert felt that not only was the subject matter of the conversation out of place even joe himself seemed out of place unlike himself something was wrong the joe he knew the joe who made everyone laugh and smile now existed in anu's background in her shadows something had changed 
and things were about to change even more when Joe decided to move out of his parents' house to Canberra to begin a live-in relationship with Anu Singh. They moved in together in 1997 to a house on Antill Street in the suburbs of Canberra. What was once a fiery relationship turned into a weird, inescapable commitment. Paul Mullen, who is a forensic psychiatrist, shares how Anu began to believe her insides were rotting, that she had terrible diseases. She was a hypochondriac who had convinced herself that she had AIDS and she even felt like her skin was drying and falling apart. So this is one thing I don't know enough about hypochondria so I can't fully understand this perhaps but even after multiple medical professionals confirm that you don't have a disease what goes through someone's mind to still convince them that they have a disease like aids for example that the world is stacked against them and everybody is on the opposite team now you're right these are obviously illusions hallucinations and exaggerations and anu was clearly going through something that doesn't make her evil in fact joe understood this he loved anu and helped her through all of this always there for her and never dismissive of it he recommended they see doctors and they did actually see doctors but anu's body image issues and hypochondria now boiled over into other problems she developed depressive tendencies as well as insomnia joe's mom kept insisting even having fights asking him to stay back with them begging him to stay back with them in newcastle Maria says she never got good vibes from Anu and wanted her son to stay away. But Joe fought his mother and always replied, quote, "Anu is sick, mom, and she needs me." unquote. Joe truly loved Anu, but did not have an iota of a clue what was happening behind the scenes inside her head. In January 1997, Anu complained to her father that she was always pacing back and forth and never sleeping. Her insomnia had devoured her and was pushing her to the brink of insanity as per her. Anu at one point said, "Quote, I think I have a different head. I have a different head on a different body. I'm going mad." Unquote. Her father arranged for his daughter Anu to see a psychiatrist as she was also showing other strange behavior patterns, like for example having as many as 10 showers a day. This wasn't a case of one mental issue but a multifaceted implosion of multiple mental disorders. This was pure chaos. In fact, Anu's mother was so worried about her daughter's mental health that she contacted the mental health crisis team in Canberra. They found Anu hysterical and complaining that she was about to die. But this is a turning point in the story. A major shift happens now. When the mental health crisis team asks Anu what is happening to her, she blames Joe, her own boyfriend, the man who apparently loves her so much and has moved all the way to Canberra just for her. She reveals to the emergency team that Joe has been poisoning her leading to her muscle rotting disease. Do you believe that Ashwara? Honestly, after so much crime watching, I don't know if I disbelieve that. I've kind of realized that you never truly truly know anyone and if we don't truly know what was going on in Anu's head, we equally don't know what was going on in Joe's head. Well, when the doctors looked at Anu and analyzed her, there was no sign of any disease. 
it is all a figment of her imagination huh and what she was calling poison was a drug called ipecac spelled i p e c a c ipecac is a drug that induces vomiting so when anu kept complaining to joe that she is fat she is fat she is fat joe allegedly recommended her to take ipecac to lose weight typical bulimic symptoms however there is no evidence to suggest that joe ever suggested her to take that medicine in fact joe had been very averse to most drugs even recreational ones and kept his distance from them but do you know ashwara who had a history of drug abuse much before joe chinkwe was even in the picture you remember that gap year anu took because she was missing her family yep well it was not so much missing her family but certain mental issues and drug abuse that caused her to want to go back home but now anu continued to narrate the story about joe poisoning her not just to the doctors but also to her friends and what began with blaming joe soon turned into something way more sinister anu started telling people she wanted to kill joe chinkwe and not just joe but she wanted to kill her doctors and her ex-boyfriend simon as well by the end of 1997 Anu openly shared with her friend group her desire to kill herself. Anu was suicidal, very suicidal. The way Anu dressed started to change. The once outgoing and well-dressed Anu now roamed around shabbily without a care in the world. And Joe, the happy family guy became a fraction of what he was. It was like his soul was taken away. The boy who solo traveled Europe was long gone and just a shell of Jochinkwe remained who followed Anu all day validating her at every step. Aran please please for the love of god tell me that someone a friend a family member at this stage contacted some psychiatric ward somewhere in Australia and got her admitted. Nope. No one did. Because despite their problems Ashwarya they did love each other and more importantly they maintained a facade of a relationship they threw dinner parties for example where everything seemed normal like the one they hosted at their house on antel street on friday 24th october 1997 the couple anu and joe hosted a dinner party for their friends but few knew that this dinner party would change not just their lives but the lives of an entire continent forever The party went as parties go, small talk, wine, more small talk, more wine, more wine, dessert and hasta la vista it's time to go back to your house. Everything at that dinner party on 24th October went normally. It is what happened next that is troublesome. 36 hours after the party ended on the morning of 26th October 1997 what was supposed to be a quiet lazy sunday started with a call to the police the call was placed from inside that antel street house by none other than anu what follows is a redramatization by us of the actual call we will read out to you the transcript of the call between anu and the police responder when she dialed 000 that's australia's version of 100 or 911 Could I get an ambulance please? I have a person potentially overdosed on heroin. Potentially overdosed? 
well uh, he's not he's vomiting everywhere blood stuff he's vomiting blood right okay what's the address is that a bad sign what's the address can you hang on please just tell me is that a bad sign that's well it's not good if he's vomiting blood oh uh, is he going to be okay i don't know i'll send an ambulance for them to check him out fair enough what's the address 30 antel street is that a flat or a house Oh, it's a flat. What number in Antel Street? What's going to happen? What's the flat number? Oh, shit. Shit. Listen to me. Oh, hang on. Um, what am I going to do? Settle down. Settle down. Okay. What am I going to do? Well, if you tell the address, I'll get an ambulance out to you. Will he be okay? I don't know. We'll have to get an ambulance to assess him. What is the number of the flat in Antel? Is uh, is Oh shit. What is the number of the flat in Antel Street? It's um 79. So flat 3079 is that correct? Yeah. No, no, hang on. Flat 30? Hang on, where is the ambulance? The ambulance is at Dickinson. Now just calm down. What's your name? Oh shit. He's vomiting blood. What are What's your name? Tell me, tell me please. What is your name? Oh my god. Oh god. Olivia What is your name please Olivia Olivia Oh fuck hang on hang on What's the phone number you're ringing from Hang on his heart's still beating Good right now just settle down for god's sake Flat 3079 Antel Street Flat 3079 No 79 Antel Street What's the flat number It's a townhouse It's 79 in Antel Street Yeah yeah get here quickly All right we'll get someone there shortly Oh my god. I just want to start by saying that I hate making judgments on the way people react when something bad has happened to them because none of us know how we'll behave when something this terrible happens. If our boyfriend is dying in front of us, we don't know how we'd be behaving with a 911 operator. But she sounds manic. She sounds kind of crazy, completely incoherent. She lies about multiple details. Why would she lie about her name? Olivia apparently. Who is Olivia? And the apartment address. She first said they live in an apartment right. when they don't live in an apartment. And then she called it a townhouse. Then she called it a townhouse. And was it 30 or 79? It was, was 79. It? Huh. Around the same time that the ambulance arrives at the Antel house, a father and mother are preparing tea in an old family house in Newcastle. You see, every Sunday Maria and Nino Chinkwe prepared tea to enjoy a hearty conversation with their son at 5 p.m. every Sunday. This was a Chinkwe ritual. The call never came. Something felt off and Maria's motherly spidey senses detected something. So she immediately dialed up his number. "Hello," responded a weird male voice on the other side. Was it Joe who had just woken up they wondered It was a police sergeant on call Maria infuriated and restless asked him what was happening but before the sergeant on phone got a chance to respond someone knocked at their door At once Nino and Maria went to see who it was and it was the police Nino Joe's father didn't understand what was happening but Maria Joe's mother She was hysterical. She asked the cop what had happened. She demanded answers. The cop said, "Quote, it is about your son." Unquote. 
Without letting the cop complete his statement or the story, Maria Chinque shouted and I quote, She killed him, didn't she? That devil, that devil. Please tell me it is not true. Please. Unquote. Tune into part two of Death by the Devil next week to find out if Anu was innocent as she claimed or was she guilty and who all were involved in the murder. Next week, you will also hear the voice of the killer accepting their crime. Oh, and mind you, Joe's killer is not in jail anymore. So till the next episode, stay safe, stay crazy, stay desi.